Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh as the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I want down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? That might be, you know, aiming for utopia, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Uh, Richie, God. how are we feeling this morning? I just watched the goal set to the Titanic music and it really works, but it really, really works. I think this is the most fun we're ever going to have in a podcast. I don't want to get into a war awards. I don't want to get into a war awards. It's good, isn't it? There's a guy. You might remember Alan Ferns. Did you I remember Alan Ferns? Yeah, yeah. Red haired guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me yeah. and Alan Ferns had a fight once in the, in the Guinness uh, <laughs> swimming pool dressing room. Oh, on Watling Street there. Frazier and Ali and another incarnation when they were both young and I guess I was too. <laughs> Reverend Jesse Jackson, you're very welcome to the show. Well, the few people resist publicly, he uh, cast a light that lit up our pathway. 30 million watched the fight. What? Yes, that's true. Um, I was better known in Africa than I was in that's Ireland. unbelievable. He threw a hard dryer, I think at David Beckham, <laughs> uh, in the, is that right? No. So I had this weird thing where I was always the same weight as my age. Holy shit, Kevin Murphy, it's US Murphy. Round of applause for US Murphy, yes, that's him. Kios, right? Upstairs at Kios. Kios, everyone, but that's yeah. fine. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened, but talk us through it. Oh, just saying, Sig Thorson is the only. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. 
about 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Oh, I'm not going to lie, I've got a little bit of the first day at school feeling going on, going on here. Extremely excited, Murph and Ken, and a little bit nervous at the same time. Hello and welcome to the Second Captain's Football Podcast, the World Service is live. Hello there, Owen, and hello, everyone. Hey, Owen, are you? A bit Martin Tyler of me there, was it? Uh, wow. Well, I was actually only watching it, uh, watching Sky uh, yesterday, and his and it's live is getting better with every passing <laughs> year. His pre-Chelsea Burnley and it's live yesterday was a masterpiece. It was absolutely spectacular. You can get onto a brand new version of secondcaptains.com to get involved in the World Service. I can only hope this all goes better than my actual first day at school. Oh, Did I ever on, tell you about? No, well, what happened? Well, actually, sorry. My very first school was boys and girls together until first class, and then I went to, into an all-boys primary school from second class. Okay. So what age are you going to go into second class? Uh, seven. Seven, seven, that kind yeah. of age. Um, so I, my mother spent the entire weekend walking me up and down the route from our house to the school so that I'd be familiar with She had to go and work on Monday mornings. Mm-hmm. So she thought, well, he's old enough now that he should be able to walk this fairly undemanding and directly straight line to the school yeah yeah. I pretty much freaked out got lost didn't know where I was going and had to have pity taken upon me by Aww. the parent of another child Aww. who eventually walked me to the school it's a bit like a less extreme version of that movie Lion uh, uh, good movie actually huh? yeah. uh, it's about an Indian boy who gets lost uh, some 1700 kilometres from home and ends up in Tasmania <laughs> <laughs> if you substitute kilometres for feet then you've got uh, some better uh, understanding of what Owen went through. Well, today certainly seems to be going better so far. Loads of you have already got down to business and signed up. A big, massive second captain's... Can you do a hug over podcast? Get in here, everybody. Let the big bear get his paws on you. Big second captain's hug for you for doing that. As we said, it is going to be up to you to make this work, and you've been brilliant so far. It's been great. Carol Smurf says she is pledged to second captains, in inverted commas. The last pledge I took was a confirmation booze pledge. Mm. Here's hoping this one goes better. So uh, someone was calling himself an arts patron as well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, which I also liked. A patron of the arts. Owen oh, Callanan yeah. is all signed up with no issues. The excitement about which Ken Early's drawing I'm going to receive is building nicely. Well, you're not on your own there, Owen. There's a, there's a lot of excitement around that one. If you do have any issues signing up, by the way, just email members at secondcaptains.com. That's members, plural, at secondcaptains.com or tweet us at secondcaptains and let us know what the issue is. We will get it sorted for you. If you happen to take a week off last week and you've no idea what the hell I'm talking about, Today is launch day of the Second Captain's World Service. It's a member-led, independent online station. It's going to give you the chance to listen to all your favourite Second Captain's podcasts every day of the week. Two pods on a Monday, like this one you're listening to right now, and then one every day from Tuesday. That's tomorrow, Tuesday to Friday. Membership costs €5 a month, plus VAT, depending where in the world you're listening from. And as well as the podcasts, all the podcasts you can handle, you'll also get a Second Captain's induction pack, I should say. It includes the aforementioned Kennedy Doodle, priority notice for all live shows, members-only events, discounts on everything in the Second Captain's shop, Second Captain's badge. Did I mention Richie Sadler's new show? Have I mentioned this? No. Okay, where are my manners? Maybe it's because I'm slightly concerned about how well it's going to go and this who might be the... Hot breath on your neck. The anchor around here. It's the player's chair with Richie Sadler. It'll debut this week as part of the World Service. And I think you'll agree he's done 
pretty well for guest number one. It's only the manager of the moment in the Premier League. Richie met his former teammate, Sean Dyche, in Dublin today, uh, discussing all manner of things, including how he deals with players who have a bit of a reputation. We're thinking one in particular. Where does a player like Joey Barton fit into a conversation like this? Because a lot of people, I think, were struck by how things went for him at Glasgow Rangers and then for you to pick up the phone and to give him a ring and to sign him in the way that you did. I've read it many, many times that so many other managers would not have made that call or signed a player like that. Why did you? You know, I don't want to judge anyone. Um, so where he's gone elsewhere, other things that have happened to him, and not they're not for me to decide on. I can only speak about him and me at Burnley Football Club. And I mean it sincerely. A lot of people use this term. They say, how have you managed him? I haven't managed him. I've just spoken to him. He's a, he's a man. He's not a boy. I say it all the time. But people think there's this magic dust of management. There's not. But if you go back to what we were talking about, or what I was suggesting, if you respond to people on key core values, if he knows I'm going to be honest with him, he knows I'm going to give him the truth, he knows that I'm going to speak to him and listen, well, it's not a bad start point. So with him, I just found that's the way of doing it. So not actually sort of managing him, just speaking to him and, and almost involving him in the process, but he knows where the line is. All of my lads know where the line is, and they know that clearly. It's, there's a defined moment when they know enough is enough. Oh, I love that voice. If Sean Dyche tells me where the line is, I agree that I know, I now recognise where that line mm. is. It's just it's just very gravelly it's post-match. Gravelly. It's, it's not quite as gravelly there. Oh, that's I pretty think. gravelly. I know. It's, uh, well, listen, on. I mean, we're, t- we're splitting hairs here. <laughs> but I think it is after a full... And he does shout a lot on the sideline. Mm. I mean, anytime the camera pans to Sean Dyche, he's roaring something at the absolute top of his voice. So, I mean, you know post-match you're getting some serious gravel it is one area in which <laughs> in which the technological revolution in football hasn't yet made its presence felt mm. voice sideline voice amplification headsets you know do we still have haven't yet graduated to an in-ear uh oh you mean the players actually to, to manager it might uh, be a bit dangerous they have to use some more conventional application uh, amplification technology a mm. megaphone <laughs> through which Deitch could bark <laughs> Uh, orders I mean I don't know I'd sign up to hear the players chair with Richie Sadler and his first guest Sean Dyche later this week and to get all the rest of the shows from Tuesday through Friday from now on just go to secondcaptains.com to become part of this thing you'll be able to listen to all the shows on your podcast app there's a little explainer page on secondcaptains.com which shows you how to input your own RSS feed into your podcast player it's all very straightforward but again if there are any problems at all just tweet us or email members at secondcaptains.com if none of that's your bag it's no problem at all you can still get the two Monday shows regardless let's report on some sport Ken there's a lot of it well I want to there's a lot to report on what is a little bit unusual is a lot of Irish goal kings today Mm. kings of the goal I suppose (laughs) Uh, Kings of the goal. None more so than this young man. It's Brady. Oh, it's brilliant. Robbie Brady announces himself as a Burnley player in spectacular fashion. What a strike. Courtois didn't even smell it. I think uh, Jamie Carragher sounded enthusiastic enough there about mm. Robbie Brady. Mm. Um, very fine goal. Uh, ran to the corner flag, slid to the corner flag, got up out of the slide, used his slide momentum oh. to actually get up out of the slide. This is a man who knows his way around a knee slide. He loves a good knee slide. In that fairness, was... conditions were 
were pretty much perfect. Uh, yeah, but he knows how to adapt to the conditions, Murph. Same thing in Sarajevo. Was it even in Sarajevo? It wasn't. That game away to Bosnia. Amazing Zenita. knee slide. Zenita. Yeah, Zenita. amazing knee slide through the fog. And he knew the only way he could be seen through the fog was to get burst low. through it. Get low. <laughs> get low. Get underneath that. Get underneath it. Yeah. That fog stays high. Mm. I go, no, never mind. There were uh, also great goals by Wes Hildehan, uh, who scored a quite bizarre lob. I don't know if you've seen it. About 35 yards. It seemed to have a very straight trajectory, but it was just high enough to be the goalkeeper before dipping in. Uh, that was for Norwich, obviously. Preston. Proud Preston uh, scored, uh, had three Irish goal scorers, well, two Irish goal scorers, three Irish ghouls uh, in the form of Aidan McGeady. Mm-hmm. Uh, he scored two very good ones. And then Daryl Horgan, who powered through the middle. Have you seen his uh, his effort? Oh, yeah. He took a very, uh, he took like an early line. It kind of reminded me of almost a rugby move. <laughs> he, he, he picked his line pretty early and just powered all the way through, and they couldn't quite get to him. And uh, and he finished it off well. So McGeady's two goals were hilariously good. <laughs> no, it was there was a, there was a little bit of the um, the Georgia second goal to his second goal yesterday. Sort of gets the ball, performs an elaborate series of feints and steps, and then uh, knocks it into the top corner. So yeah, that was all uh, very good. Um, obviously, the one for Burnley uh, stopped Chelsea from extending their lead. Uh, to 12 points. What a great time to talk to Sean Dyche, literally the day after this. Mm. Good man, Richie. Um, well, Sean Dyche and his... See, I'm not afraid to praise Richie Murphy. The man who, he's, he's first among Very equals. Very big, yeah. First <laughs> among equals in the Premier League, uh, Dyche and Conte. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, that was Keon. Martin Keon said that. Yes. The two best managers in the Premier League. But, but Conte, was Conte maybe a little bit dismissive, a bit sniffy about what happened? The pitch is small, and this is better for the team that has to defend and play this long ball. You have less pitch to cover, and then there is a good atmosphere with the supporters. And I, I think it's good. It's right to have this type of atmosphere at Burnley. And for all these reasons, they have all these points in the table. We put a lot of energy on the pitch today. We took only one point. We put, we've uh, found a team that thought to disrupt our football, to play this long ball, and to fight the second ball. So there is Antonio Conte, lightly patronising, uh, English Warriors, Burnley FC. <laughs> um, Sean Dyche, uh, not hugely impressed. Every manager has to give their opinion. He concedes. It's not a problem for me. Um, it is interesting that Burnley are, I think, fourth in the home form table and bottom of the away table. You've only got one point away from home, I think. One, one uh, draw, 10 defeats away from home. But at home, they've got 29 points. So they're actually behind Leicester, but Leicester have played two more away games and got two more draws. Um, so a win in one of their next two away games would see them ahead of Leicester in the away state. But it's a massive difference. Yeah. It really is a very pronounced uh, uh, difference. Does it have anything to do with the pitch, though? Um, well, when you compare Stamford Bridge, uh, the expansive home ground of Chelsea FC, uh, he do play some fantastic football. You see that it's 103 metres by 67. And when you compare it to Turf Moor, the claustrophobic uh, space of, of Burnley, who just like to get in. You know, like if you... If you They're uh, in on top of you, aren't they, Ken? It's like fighting with a tramp in a wheelie bin, you know, playing at Burnley. Um, it's... Uh, so, so what were the Stamford Bridge? Colourful phrase. Uh, 103 metres by 67, that's Stamford Bridge. Turf Moor... 104 metres by 66, which does give Chelsea a slightly larger playing area because their pitch is wider and that one metre 
with advantage extends for 103 metres of the length. But Burnley do have a longer pitch than Chelsea, mm. adding up to two of actually the most similarly sized grounds in the league, <laughs> uh, with only Anfield uh, coming in between those two. So uh, I couldn't really... Uh, I couldn't really say that the pitch was that much of a difference. But, you know, Antonio Conte just proved that he's good at coming up with uh, reasons on the hoof as to why he didn't get the three points. I like the fact that Dyche kind of didn't give that much legs, that, that strain of thought. Because he actually talked... See, I'm ahead of Richie's interview today, Murphy. Just gave him a few bits of information on oh. Sean Dyche I thought he might interesting, like interesting interesting uh, power play by you there I uh, yeah just let the people know where the power really lies <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember having read the Michael Calvin book a couple mm-hmm. of years ago I mean, we've talked about that quite a lot of living on a volcano or living on the volcano about football manager Sean Dyche is one of the managers interviewed and he used a phrase about the rebranding or the de-branding of managers he says a lot of managers go in for this and he calls it de-branding which means basically you would think you know put it out there that this other manager Oh yeah, no good result they got against our team today. It's just pity they had to resort to the long balls. So they start debranding, they start making people think of you as less than what you actually are as a manager. Mm. Oh, it's just a long ball team. That's the brand. That's all that's left of it when a manager strips it away. He says he doesn't go in for it himself, and when other managers try it, he does his best to <laughs> ignore it where possible. So yeah, maybe he's probably done that here. Well, he made the point after this game. Uh, he said, uh, "Look." Um, you've got to remember we're a team everyone thought I had no chance to get to where we are I don't know if he's being disrespectful he doesn't know all the work we do in the training ground he doesn't know the depth of the analysis we use to get the players to perform I don't expect him to know that his job is to crack on with Chelsea he's doing a blooming good job as well but if we went into the Premier League and did what everyone else does I don't think we would do it as well as them so we do things that are different and strange the brand of football I want to play is the one that wins every footballer wants to win so um, trying to mix it up a little bit uh, give opponents problems that they're not familiar with and at home at any rate it does seem to work if they could crack the away side although it does look as though they're, they're they don't really have to <laughs> they're pretty likely to, to stay up as it is yeah. I mean, they're 10 points clear of relegation and the way the re- teams in relegation are going you don't see them closing the gap that fast so uh, without wishing to put the mockers on them no there are too many teams down there that would have to <clears throat> suddenly have a run and they can't, even mathematically, it's hard for them all to have a run because they're going to be playing against each other quite a lot. Mm. Mind you, Conte was having a few uh, little pops at his team from other quarters. Uh, Jose Mourinho was uh, offering the opinion that he doesn't think Chelsea will throw away this lead because they're such a defensive team that it kind of suits them to be out in front the way they are when you're such a defensive team and such a counter-attacking team. Uh, he said, they defend very well with lots of players, I think in this situation, a very defensive team wins the title with counter-attack goals and set-pieces goals. So I don't think they will let it slip, but football is football. That's that de-branding that Dyche was talking about. A little bit of de-branding. Um, Chelsea have obviously scored, uh, you know, 13 more goals than Manchester United. They've scored a few more. Um, uh, Conte is saying, look, you know, I, I, I don't care. I know what Jose's doing. He's just having a little, his little jokes. We'll leave that there. Mourinho himself, very happy uh, after Manchester United's uh, 2-0 win over Watford, which really could have been a lot more some of those games. But, you know, you're, they were really ripping Watford to pieces in the first half. I mean, the, the few minutes leading up to the eventual opening goal by Mata had chance after chance from almost point-blank range. Um, Zlatan missed a couple of uh, quite easy chances throughout the game. And they looked like they're going really well, as Mourinho said. It was very good, very good. I think 
it's the kind of football that if it wasn't a Mourinho team, if it's somebody else's team, you would say, art. <laughs> but because it's my team, you just say it's very good, but that's fine. Did you see the last, uh, like, 30 seconds of Match of the Day on Saturday night? Uh, no. So everyone's agreed then. Manchester United on the march. They're looking dangerous. Wow, they're playing such great football. And then they flash the table up and Manchester United are still sixth. I mean, (laughs) they were playing terribly in sixth. uh, Playing quite well in sixth. Went on a bad run. uh, Had a couple of bad uh, uh, results. Still sixth. Uh, back playing sparkling football still in sixth place yeah but they are now only two points off second place which is the big difference I mean they could conceivably be second with with one win and some favourable results they just need to catch up with the rest of that peloton they're cycling on their own at the moment they're getting no help from anybody they just need to latch on get into a slipstream there of somebody yeah um, uh, Mourinho had one other point to make which was sort of an interesting one he says what I think you are um, forgetting um, this season to say this is the most defensive Premier League that I've ever known and it's not because of my team many 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 defensive teams in the Premier League more than ever less English managers and it's probably my 7th or 8th year in the Premier League it's the most defensive I've ever had now I'm not sure how he decides that the league is more defensive but I guess one maybe a crude uh, marker for that would be well, I mean what would what pops Ghouls. into your mind and how many of them have been scored? Total goals. Total goals. Well, not total goals. Goals per game. We haven't finished the season yet. We don't know how. Goals per game. We don't know how total goals is going to hit up. But goals per game. If you look at goals per game, uh, this is actually the highest goals per game of any season since 1967-68. <laughs> 2. 2.82 goals per game. 67-68 uh, was the last time it was over three goals per game in the in the top division in English football. Um, and since then, you had a big, you had a big drop off, and and since then, a kind of an increase. Actually, the two seasons, uh, or uh, when Jose won the title in two thousand and five, it's point three goals per game more than that. And twenty fifteen to two thousand and five, very similar, uh, about two and a half goals a game. And when he won it in two thousand and six, it was the sixth lowest, uh, two point four eight per game, six sixth lowest out of one hundred and eighteen seasons. Um, I would say. Uh, it's hard to make the argument, or to sustain the argument, that this is the most defensive Premier League season ever. I wonder if he threw in that thing about the English managers as sort of to bait the hook a little bit, <laughs> you know, because that's maybe a more popular point. You know, if you can say, if you can put a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine <laughs> go down, you can maybe get your point out there. The lowest, incidentally, uh, the lowest ever season in terms of goals per game in English football was weirdly just a couple of seasons after the the most recent high point of 67-68. It was 1970-71, and the double was won by... Arsenal Football Club, um, 2.3. But, uh, yeah, the one other thing Mourinho was saying was uh, it's going to be difficult for us because we they now have to play a bunch of, like, the League Cup final and Europa League and FA Cup and all this kind of stuff. So they're not actually playing the Premier League for a while now. And he says that the other teams uh, will will leave us. You know, basically, there's going to be a gap again by the time we play in this competition next. He says, uh, well, you know, uh, we play the Europa League, so let's enjoy that. We know in this moment Southampton are probably going to have some days off. I don't know if they go to a summer camp to enjoy some nice, beautiful place with nice weather to prepare for the final. The only thing I know is their next game is the final. We have to play three matches during this period. We have to train in this cold weather. We have to train on bad pitches. The weather doesn't help the pitches. So our situation isn't easy, but we have to enjoy it. So um, warm weather training for Southampton. Uh, Although 
it, it just shows managers' opinions on this issue are don't always uh, match up. I saw David Moyes saying that he too was taking his his players, his Sunderland players, away on a trip to uh, train in a new environment. Although, unlike Southampton, of which doesn't really expect Southampton to do, he's going to take them to freezing New York to run <laughs> in the snow in Central Park. It's something different, says Moyes. Uh, it gives the players something to look forward to. We're going to watch basketball and ice hockey and go to ground zero. So culturally, I hope to educate the boys as well. The big thing for me, though, is to create team spirit. I want them to build relationships off it too. And the psychology behind going somewhere so cold is when we come back, we'll think Sunderland is Dubai. Um, <laughs> a lot or of... you could just go to Dubai. <laughs> or go to Siberia. Mm. If you really want to feel warm when you get back. Yeah. It's... This is interesting because this is the sort of... Uh, no upside, lots of downside managerial decision that when you're in the relegation zone is a really bad idea. Well, who knows? He, he said he'd done it with Everton at work there and who who wouldn't like a trip to New York? That is true. Out, that know, is true. Run in Central Park. It's not the it's not the worst setup really for the Sunderland players. Um so one of the big games over the weekend was Liverpool against Tottenham. Uh, and this was a very important win. For Liverpool, after what they've been through in their first of first win of 2017 in the league, I think. Uh, and Mane obviously getting a couple of goals, and it's always sickening, I think, for Pochettino to see Mane doing these things because he wanted to sign Mane, and Daniel Levy decided he was too expensive. And Pochettino's already made the point to Levy after the, the, the Tottenham Liverpool game at the beginning of the season if we had a player like Mane, we would have won this game. Um, <laughs> by which he meant, if we had Mane, we would have won this game. Um, although, Jorginho Wijnaldum, who also had a great game. There were some interesting comments, actually, from the Liverpool players after this. And they did a lot of talking after. It's usually Klopp who does most of the talking there. But on this occasion, Wijnaldum uh, and Lalana both had a lot to say. Wijnaldum, first of all, was saying, uh, don't... Don't um, just talk about Sadio Mane. He's important, but it's too much Sadio Mane now. He scored two goals, but also I think it, it's been about him because we had poor results without him. Before he left for Africa, we had good results. Still, they said, Sadio Mane, Sadio Mane. But last week, we lost with Sadio Mane. I don't think it's fair to the other players to say, because of Sadio Mane, we win. Of course, he's a great player. He helps us with his speed and scores goals. But I think it is more about the team than only Sadio Mane. You'd want to say his name a couple more times. If it was another player, like when Phil was injured, if we had poor results, and everyone would have said, Phil Coutinho. You have to get used to it, but I don't think it's fair. He also said, uh, criticism kills the team. It's very important, basically, that Klopp didn't agree with all their media critics that they were, you know, not that good. Pretty unusual for a player to talk about his teammate like that. Well, look, it's a bit like, uh, remember you were, t- you were talking about Lallana before, and it was like people were saying... Well, Adam Lallana, Jurgen Klopp really has shown you the way. You were a little lost sheep, and then he, <laughs> yeah. he brought you back to the fold, and here you are, actually quite productive, you know? We'd given you up for lost, and, and he kind of bristled, seemed to bristle out of yeah. it. Oh, you know, he's a good manager, but you know, it's... Uh, he hasn't changed anything. Um, he was given the credit this time to Jordan Henderson. He says, uh, because Jordan Henderson called a meeting for a frank exchange of views to which Jurgen Klopp was not invited. And uh, uh, big credit to Jordan, says Adam Lallana. He wanted the team meeting to happen. He got everyone together. It wasn't just him who spoke. The senior players spoke. The non-senior pl- senior players, everyone. It was good. It was refreshing. 
just in the dressing room at Melwood, every now and again, it doesn't hurt to speak about it. Sometimes, if anyone has anything to say, as long as it's not personal, just purely professional, there's no harm in reminding each other of what we need to do and what we want from each other. You could see everyone was fighting for each other. So uh, whatever the reason for this, they did uh, find their way out of it a bit. Although you can't really separate, I think, their win from Tottenham's really bad mm. performance. I mean, it was the worst I've seen Tottenham play, certainly since they lost to Manchester United a couple of months ago. And you could see just the difference that a couple of important injuries make to a team. Tottenham lose for Tongan and they lose Danny Rose. And they're just not the same Tottenham. They kept getting ripped open down what would have been Rose's side. And uh, Pochettino, actually, I'm not sure what Vinaldum would think of this, but he, he is very unforgiving of his team. You know, when they disappoint him. He, he is, did seem furious, yeah. Well, he says, if you start a game like we start, it's very difficult. It's difficult to fight for the Premier League if you show that lack of desire to play for a win. Which is, you know, it's not a case of, well, we had injuries, Liverpool played well, you know, mistakes happened. It's lack of desire. <laughs> uh, I mean, he also talked a bit about how they're trying to do, do the same job with different tools. Because Tottenham are not a team that's spending a lot of money at the moment because they're doing stadium, or building a new stadium. Um uh, so he did. If you, you know, so if you compare Tottenham with the other teams competing with the top four, you should say, "Wow, Tottenham deserve a lot of credit for where they are now." Um, Except that the Leicester thing happened last year when Tottenham were in position to beat a team with much inferior resources and still couldn't do it, mm. as, in beat, as in beat a team to the title. Well, why was that though? Why did they not beat Leicester to the title? Lack of. Well, it was largely down to that result against Chelsea, wasn't it? Yeah, but Pochettino like a fight. Pochettino uh, slammed them after that and said they, you know, this this team isn't ready to. This team sh- showed to me that they're not ready for this. You know, I, I need to see more from them. Remember, it was they they didn't they lose five nil to Newcastle? Something ridiculous. You know, they they'd obviously all given up. It was over, and uh, they had this ridiculous result. And Pochettino seemed like, you know, someone was really going to get badly punished for this. And uh, I mean. It, it seemed at that time doubtful that Tottenham would be able to recover. And actually, they have. You know, the season that they... They've very much picked up where they left off last season. You know, after struggling a bit earlier. But they're, they're going really well now. Um, but Pochettino just showing that, like, you know, what's, you know, what you've done already, don't think of it as being in the bank. That's gone. You know, all that matters is what happens next. You know, he's very, very uh, demanding. Your final story in this edition of your report on Sporting? Um... Well, we should, uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about what's happening in Germany because, uh, did we mention the Dortmund-Leipzig? We, we did when we were talking to Raphael Einstein. Um, the attack on the Leipzig fans. Yeah, and this kind of orgy of self-righteousness from the Dortmund fans who had all these banners saying, well, all of these, like so many banners on the, the whole kind of big Sud Tribune, the massive stand they have, it was just covered in these things, messages taunting Red Bull-Leipzig. Um, for which uh, they've now been told they have to play their next game with nobody on that wall. Mm-hmm. No, just a big empty concrete slab <laughs> is going to be uh, cheering them on for their next their next match. Um, that's only for the um, for the banners, though. The the actual violence and stuff is kind of apparently the league says, well, that's kind of more of a police matter. That's not really, but they have been punished for that. But there was another um, incident. Uh, this is this is a bizarre one. Um, St. Pauli, uh, the team from Hamburg, playing away to Dresden 
over the weekend. Now, in Dresden, had an important anniversary yesterday, which is the 72nd anniversary of the firebombing of Dresden during the Second World War. Um, and the St. Pauli fans um, had a had a, um, a banner behind the goal. They're, they're obviously the, the away team in this. And first of all, they said, it said, look over there where they're still plowing the fields with horses. They cordially invite you to their, you know, torchlit parade, which is basically an insinuation that the backward bumpkins supporting Dresden, uh, you know, have sort of Nazi-ish sympathies. They then turned this over to reveal the uh, the message. Um, well, Sean or Grosseldern happened for Dresden, Cabrand, which means your grandparents already burned for Dresden uh, against the German Opfer uh, Mythos means kind of uh, uh, victimhood mythology, which is this idea, which is it's uh, it's referring to the fact that in Germany over the last maybe since you know the mid kind of nineties. Um, what happened in Germany after the war was obviously kind of denazification and a very conscious uh, program of what they call coming to terms with the past in which, uh, you know, everybody was taught in school, you know, a very kind of a version of history, which is very rare in the world, a version of history in which we were the bad guys. You know, you don't get you don't tend to find this in national uh, curricula around the world. It's usually quite a positive view of whichever country you happen to be in of, the, of their history. You know, in Germany that hasn't been the case um, because the the thinking was this is something which we have to we have to own this and have to try to retrain people into you know so that, so people here aren't going to be vulnerable to sort of nationalist passions, you know, this idea that my country's always right, all the kind of problems that led to this big disaster that, you know, we know was the Second World War. Um, but more recently, uh, a kind of strain of history has emerged in which um, Germans are, or, or that concentrates on the, on the victimhood of Germans during the war, that um, uh, things happened like the bombing of Dresden in which, you know, 25,000 people died in a night of, of incendiary bombings, which were war crimes, which, which the Germans were victims of. And there was, you know, many of these types of things, war, the war, war crimes were committed by the Allies and Germans. So it's kind of challenging this notion of, you know, this the, of, of the, the Germans of, as having been the instigators. It's more a case of looking around and saying, well, nobody was innocent here, really, you know. Now, obviously, this is a kind of a a thinking which is quite—it's uh, more popular, let's say, among on the right than on the left. So St. Pauli is like a famously kind of left-wing club. They're basically coming and saying, "You uh, idiots, uh, Nazis here in the in the backward East are um, clinging to this nonsense," and they're basically saying, "Screw you!" But obviously, they do so in a way which couldn't possibly really be more offensive. I mean, referring to your burning grandparents in the city. Um, so obviously you can imagine the reaction in Germany hasn't been too good. I don't know what the punishment for St. Pauli is going to be. And I also wonder how effective this type of um, argument is in advancing the point that they want to make because I feel as though they probably alienate more people with that. I think they probably, I think it's probably a counterproductive way to go about making their point. And so ends Kennedy's report on sport. What an ending.
words really. I'm, I'm over the moon. Emotional. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's Stuttgart. It's New Jersey. They're all rolled into one. Another big, big scalp when it was needed most. Leon, here we come. Let's talk a little more about Leicester now and their oh, what is increasingly looking like uh, their plummet to the depths of the relegation zone. They're hovering around there now and may well may well go. We talked a bit about this last week. Uh, Jonathan Wilson is ready to chat now, though. Jonathan Claudio Ranieri yesterday in particular, I think the body language looked pretty bad. He looked a little bit bedraggled post match. He was asked in the press conference about whether or not he's been too loyal to certain players, and he pretty much said, "Well, yeah. I mean, I've given them a few chances this season, but you know." these are the guys they got us the Premier League last year things not looking too good overall no they're really not I mean it was a, a really poor performance um, sort of two really sloppy bits of defending to cost them the goals and then yeah taking a look at half time Swansea could sit back and sort of hold them at arm's length and they really you know barely threatened and you sort of there was one chance for Vardy I think about 12 minutes to go when the defence sort of opened up for him and he screwed, screwed it miles wide and you sort of think, well, last season he had the confidence, things like that were, go- were going in for him. Um, and, that, you know, wasn't even close to threatening the goal. You know, he looked like a player he'd been playing non-league football five years ago. So, so yeah, the, the, the uh, momentum is very definitely downwards and I think they're right to be very concerned. There's an amazing statistic about Vardy, which is that if you go back to um, when he scored in the 4-1 defeat against Liverpool, which is in September... He hasn't scored in 23 of the next 24 games he played. There's, there's just a hat-trick against Manchester City in there and absolutely nothing else. I've, I cannot remember a player, a player of the year, falling off a cliff like this before. Yeah, but I mean, I think that the whole... It's not just Vardy, it's everybody at Leicester. This is unprecedented. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's two issues there. One is, it's an interesting the clubs that Vardy has scored against this season. That, yeah, he scored against Liverpool, scored the hatch against City. The teams who attack Leicester, the teams who leave space behind them, you know, he can still do that. Uh, the issue is that other teams have worked out. You sit deep, and he's he hasn't really got much. And just, you saw that. Yeah, one thing on John, just before we get onto Vardy with this, because it's something that we have discussed over the last couple of weeks. How did teams not work this out in the middle of last season? <laughs> like, why did it take until this season to work out? Oh, you just don't defend de- if you if you if you defend deep, you're okay. No, no, I, th- I think they did work it out last season. It was just that everybody was on such a high, there was such momentum behind them that Vardy suddenly found himself able to execute things that were the, you know, the very range of his skill set. Right. And now, because that confidence has fallen, he, he can't do that. And I think it's not just Vardy. I think that's true of Riyad Mahrez as well, who, you know, for all the criticism of Vardy, Mahrez has scored three goals this season uh, when he got 17, I think it was, last season. Uh, now, you know, I, I saw Mahrez at the, at the Cup of Nations and you know, within 10 minutes of his first game in Zimbabwe, he scored what, you know, described to me a typical Mahrez goal. He gets the ball on the right, he drifts in, inside and he curls it in off the far post. Exactly that goal. Defence in the Premier League, no, you don't do that. And so that's been taken out of his game. And then when he stops scoring those sort of bread and butter goals, his confidence drops and he's then not creating the chances for Vardy. Vardy's confidence has dropped when he does get chances like the one with 12 minutes ago, he snatches at it. So, you know, I think... In the same way that last season was this sort of perfect storm of 
half a dozen players playing the best season of their lives. Uh, and Mahrez, I guess, would have hoped that that would be you know, a staging post or something even greater. But players like Vardy or Wes Morgan or Robert Huth must have known that really that was as good as it's ever going to get. Um, the, you know, when you have that, that core of players all playing brilliantly, and then they all have a totally understandable dip, and just they fed off each other's confidence last season, so they're feeding off each other's lack of confidence this. I mean, you say it's unprecedented, and to this extent, it's unprecedented. I mean, Astro haven't even scored in 2017 in the league in, is it five or six matches? I mean, it's a disastrous run. Um, but there are some precedents. I mean, if you look back uh, to the very first Premier League season when Leeds United finished 17th after winning the title the previous season. Um, uh, one thing that you notice when, when you compare Leicester and Leeds, uh, and in fact Blackburn, who also had a really terrible title defence in 95-96, they ended up finishing 7th, but the start was just abysmal. They were out of the running after just a few weeks. One thing that you notice is this um, inability to do anything away from home. I mean, Leicester haven't won away from home all season so far. Leeds didn't win away from home at all in 92-93. Blackburn took until January to do it. Does that suggest that there's something about the some a sense of being uncomfortable with your status as champions, as though they were a little bit embarrassed of their status and and sort of <laughs> couldn't quite feel comfortable defending, as though they didn't feel they were worth it? Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what's telling about those three examples, uh, or you look back to, I mean, the worst ever title defence, Manchester City in 37-8 when they got relegated. And, you know, the, the only team up till now who have been relegated as champions I mean, that was a very weird season in that they, they were top scorers and were still relegated. It was a very Manchester City thing to do. But, yeah, that was the first time that City won the title in, in um, 36-7. Leeds had had that, you know, that long run since the, the, the Revy days. Um, Blackburn had had you know, a long, long time since they'd been champions. Leicester, the first time they'd ever been champions. So I, I think there's a, a very understandable... You know, they, they were all clubs for whom you could think when they won the title, that's probably a one-off. You know, that, that that's not coming off the back of sustained success. There might not be great success to come. Uh, or, or you look at uh, Ipswich when they won the league in 61-2. And, of course, it tends to get forgotten because Alf Ramsey went on to become England manager. But he was still in charge by, I think, February, March in 62-3 when he finally stepped down. And yeah, Ipswich were, were desperately struggling there near the bottom of the table. And the feeling with Ipswich was that they'd been found out that they... They had this tactical trick of um, Jimmy Ledbetter, the, the left winger. They, they dropped him deeper and the fullback didn't know, should I follow him, should he, should I not? And this is what Ramsey does with England, you know, with the, the wingless wonders that win the World Cup. He, he pulls those wingers back. And, of course, in the early 60s, it was much harder for opponents to work out what they're doing because he didn't have the saturation television coverage. So, you know, for, for Ipswich, is a clear tactical reason. You look at Leeds, you could say maybe Cantona gave them that the last seven games when he came in, gave them that boost and he was gone and maybe there was a potential well, between him it, and Howard they, Wilkinson. They were sort of already gone by reasons. the time by the, by the, by the time Cantona left, which, which was in November, I think they were already, you know, completely falling apart. I mean, I, I don't know if... Well, what I'm saying is that they were already... The problem, whatever it was, started when Cantona was still very much there. Yeah, but he'd, he'd fallen out with Howard Wilkinson and been all sort of all sorts of rumblings that summer that yeah he, he'd they'd started to tail off the end of ninety one two, benefited because United fell off worse and then Cantona gave him just that little shot in the arm but he scored three goals in his last seven games, um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a specific reasoning highlight for each one but each of them 
it, they were a team who weren't used to winning, who suddenly have this status thrust upon them. And whether that is intensified away from home, as you're suggesting, yeah, maybe it is. But I, I just think, you know, not just football, anything where you've quested for something for a long, long time and suddenly you achieve it, picking yourself up to go again is, is incredibly difficult. Yeah, and if you look about it, uh, if you look at it, a couple of the teams that we mentioned there, certainly the more recent ones, Leeds in the early nineties, Blackburn. Neither of those clubs are in the Premier Division now, and um, haven't been for for some time. In the case, well, obviously Leeds came back up and uh, you know had some good years after ninety two, ninety three. Blackburn not so much. Would you be concerned about the future of Leicester if they do get relegated? Is there is there a fear that? it's not as straightforward as they get relegated and they regroup and they just come straight back up that they could end up go getting a little bit sunk here in the next couple of years if they go down. I mean, no more than, than you would be in a, in a normal season. I, mean, I guess the problem for Leicester is what on earth is a normal season? Mm. That um, the, the defeat uh, yesterday was 101st game since they got promoted. So the third season, 100, you know, two and two-thirds seasons near enough. Now in those 101 games, they've picked up uh, 143 points. Now you average that out, 1.4 points per game. That's fine. You know, that's that's nice and mid-table. That's sort of yeah, 54 points a season. You're not going to get in the Europa League. You're not going to get relegated. If Nigel Pearson had done that every season and hadn't had all the other issues, then yeah, he'd still happily be in a job. The board would be happy with him. Probably, I mean, you never quite know with boards, but the board should be happy with him. Uh, the, the fans would be happy enough with that. Uh, it's just that they took, of those 143 points, 103 of them came in a 47-game run, which got them to survival uh, you know, two seasons ago and then won them the league last season. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was I was trying to work this out yesterday, whether is this just a very strange distribution of, a, of normal points? Uh, there's, a, there's a mate of mine who's a West Ham fan who is a fellow at All Souls College and uh, sort of maths and philosophy is his thing. And he, he, he was, one season, he was sort of very frustrated with West Ham and sort of felt that every game they played, they were playing a team who'd just come into form. So he, he tried to calculate this. And so he looked at every team, every game West Ham played, he looked at the opposition and their previous five games to see if it was an abnormal distribution. And he concluded that in this season, yes, they kept on playing teams who'd just won a couple of matches, who were on a high, who were clearly playing well. And he came to the conclusion that if a season was to be fair, if you were to even out these fluctuations of forms, everybody played roughly the same number. So you can have a reasonable expectation of everybody playing the same number of teams in form as out of form. A season would have to be 35 years long. So I, I, I'm, part of me wonders, is, is what's happened to Leicester? Is this just an extreme version of that? That, you know, in, in two and a half seasons, that's nothing like the 35 years you need to even out. If they just had this incredible concentration of their own good form and maybe opponents' poor form, and that's now, we're now watching that even itself out. And if, if that is the case... Is there any benefit in second Claudio Ranieri? Is there anything we need to be worried about? Um, you know, if, if they hadn't won the title last season, if they'd finished twelfth, thirteenth, you know, something that you'd expect from them, would you be particularly worried now? In the okay, they've had a bad start of the year, but they're not in the relegation zone. Um, I, I don't know. I just think perceptions are, are skewed by what happened last season. Jonathan, say you were to put down the phone to us, and then you were to go and make a cup of tea. Then your phone was to ring again. And it was to be on the other end of the line. Someone said, Mr. Wilson, I have an employment opportunity for you. Uh, Vichai Srivadana Prava, owner of Leicester City, requires a conciliary uh, who knows the game uh, to advise him on matters of major import. A football man. So you're flown down to Thailand. You're obviously put up in, in uh, pretty nice 
pretty nice accommodation and uh, and entertained. Uh, then you're brought down uh, for the audience with the Leicester City owner, and he says, "Mr. Wilson, thanks for coming. Should I sack Claudio Ranieri? What do you tell him?" Um, I don't know how much am I getting paid. I've there's far bigger things than that. Uh, I think I think not. Um, I, I, you think, I you think, think not when you when you look at Hull, who have appointed a manager who seems to know how to organise defence, who certainly has has made a, a a quick impact. I mean, things are looking pretty good for Hull at the moment, uh, and you see the kind of effect that that can have. Would you not be a little bit worried that maybe, you know, if this thing is finished, Ranieri, if if that was that if they've already climbed the highest mountain and it's and you know everyone knows nothing like that will ever happen again, maybe it's time to move on to the next chapter. Well, maybe it is, but I think this is one of the, the huge problems that all teams in football have, which is nobody has any patience anymore. Um, you know, if, if we applied modern standards of how long you give a manager, uh, Herbert Chapman would never want a league title with Arsenal. Bill Chanky would never want a league title with Liverpool. Matt Bosley would never want a league title with Manchester United. Brian Clough would never want a league title with Nottingham Forest. Don Revy would never want a league title with Leeds. I, I think patience generally is a good thing. And I think even if Leicester go down... I think Ranieri has, has shown himself, not just with what he's done with Leicester, but over his career as a whole, as somebody who can, who, you know, who, who could bring them back. Uh, and and you know, we seem to have this this idea that you know, as soon as somebody gets on a, on a downwards drift, the thing to do is not to let them learn from that, not let them put that right, but is to, to get rid of them. That there's a sort of requirement for the blood sacrifice to give this sort of sudden boost that in the short term might keep them up. But to what long-term end? Uh, and I think it's a very dangerous precedent. And pretty much every club is guilty of this, of sort of saying to players, "Yeah, you know what? If if things aren't going wrong, we're not going to blame you. We're going to blame the manager." So, you know, it's, it's all right. I have three or four bad games in a row, and we'll we'll get rid of the manager. We won't we won't have a go at you. Uh, and I I I, I, I suppose the, the the way modern football is, the way that players move so so regularly, maybe that is understandable. But I think it's detrimental to long-term tactical development. I think it's detrimental to any sense of, of unity and, and togetherness at a club. And that's what Leicester really had last season. And that's what made them made them champion. Right, one of the many things that made them champions against all odds. Okay, that's a nice answer. Thanks, Jonathan. Cheers, thanks. That was one hell of a long uh, question about placing Jonathan Wilson there, Ken. Right into the middle of the brains trust at Leicester City. Yeah. Uh, Tiger skin carpet. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't really thought too many of the details. A, a chair, a, a chaise long, which in which the four golden legs are elephants, <laughs> uh, elephant heads. Anyway, and he says no. He says if he's in that room, if he's on that chaise long, he's saying no, no boss. No, he wouldn't be on the chaise. He wouldn't be on the chaise long. Um, well, be... Sri would be on the on the chaise long. Jonathan Wilson would be standing. Uh, he, I don't I don't know if he'd be allowed to sit. I mean, he's only conciliary, not. A trusted member. He of goes the to sit down and Wilson stand up. Yeah. Stand Did up I and ask? Yeah. I just it. asked you, do, should we sack uh, Ranieri? And you and said he, no. He says no. Which, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, uh, I see, I see where he's coming from. I mean, it would seem, as he says, to what end? You know, okay, maybe you'd stay up, but is it the right thing to do? No, probably not. But I suppose that 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 short-term goal of how are we going to actually stay in this league? I mean, how important it is, I'm not sure. I mean, there was an article by, by Scott Murray during the week or last week when, in which he made the point that, look, if Leicester actually get relegated, it only adds to 
the mythos of, of, of what they achieved by winning the league. You know, it actually will draw, it's the kind of thing that will draw attention to their title win <laughs> in a hundred years' time. You know what I mean? It will, it will be like, this really was, truly, this was the greatest story ever told. I think that's already going to be there. Yeah. Regardless of imminent relegation or immediate relegation. But one of the teams who may uh, send them down ultimately is Hull City. Miguel Delaney was there to see them play Arsenal at the weekend. They were beaten this time, Miguel, but played quite well again by all accounts. And they have this manager, Marco Silva, in place now who seems to be doing well. You saw this guy close up. Uh, was he an impressive character? Yeah, he was. And I think the team were impressive, even in defeat, because in contrast to Leicester, I was at the Leicester United game the previous week, and Leicester were actually good for 40 minutes, but then once they conceded, they completely collapsed. And that is the opposite to Hull, who were actually not at their best first half. Kind of, They've been, obviously, one of the impressive things about Silva is that they've been so defensively resolute. Whereas in the first, get, in the first half of this game, Arsenal were puncturing holes and did feel like a goal was coming. But once they actually conceded what was a controversial goal as well, they they rallied and looked looked probably the better team in the second half, and and they do have to they do seem to have that um, he's already instilled a certain character in them. The very the very fact that I mean once you anyone would presume the game was gone that once the bigger team had gone ahead and once a team like Arsenal at home, but it wasn't. And I think Arsenal were was somewhat fortunate to come away with a badly needed win in the end. Well, but Silva um, he was impressive enough in his press conference. Uh, interesting actually, one of the things where, where you really get a flavour for a manager in those situations is the um, Usually after a Saturday game, they'll do a bit for the Monday papers, and it's usually kind of five or six journalists, and they're a bit more chatty and things like that. But uh, but Silva didn't on Saturday. He was uh, straight out of there, did his main press conference, and went. So we didn't we didn't get to see him too up close. Yeah, I mean he's a manager who's won before at the Emirates. He was the manager of the Olympiacos side that that won three two there um, about a year and a half ago. Um, so you know he's he's kind of been there, done that. Uh, unlike I guess his predecessor in the job, Mike Phelan. Yeah. Um, what are what are the differences though between this team and 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 Phelan's team? Because it seems as though they actually now have a really good chance of getting out of this. Which at the beginning of the season, after they'd had such a shambolic summer, they had they 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 had started the season with like fourteen players, something ridiculous. Um, nobody had given them a chance. Well, also it seems that no matter what player is in that team, and like they have had some turnover of, of even even the time the short time that Silva's been there, they've had some turnover of players. And yet the level has stayed constant and probably gotten better. Uh, we actually asked Wenger about this on his, at his Thursday press conference. And uh, well, he gave uh, Silva a bit of praise. Obviously, the Olympiacos match was brought up. Well, he gave Silva a bit of praise. He was a little bit chippy about it. Kind of going, they were playing well under Mike Phelan. Uh, you know, as if kind of the ingredients were there. Uh, you know, talking to people that know kind of the whole setup and that. Apparently, one of the things he's apparently been really good at, uh, Silva, is that he's a little bit... A little bit uh, Conte like, if not as intense in terms of how he's how he positions players everywhere, particularly in defence, I suppose is what Hull have needed. But I think more importantly, what they've said is that when they do go behind, or when I suppose the, the quote unquote game state is some of the kind of terminology would have it changes when when there's a goal, he prepares them for a lot of different situations, and, that, and that's probably one reason why beyond kind of notions like character, uh, resilience, and all that, 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 that they have been so, or so 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 rigorous and so well prepared. Once they have gone behind in games like Arsenal, yeah. The big thing that's been going on there, obviously, um, at Arsenal is this: is this questions over what over what Arsene Wenger's intentions are. Um, Ian Wright last week yep. um, blabbed that he had been talking to Wenger um, in some private capacity, and Wenger had told him, "Righty, I think this could be 
this could be the end. Uh, oh, no, right. <laughs> I know, was that, was, that wasn't on the record. <laughs> but Wenger, I think, has, has dismissed uh, that as... as uh, I was just talking shout to Ian Wright. Ian Wright doesn't know what he's talking <laughs> about. But uh, it does seem as though this is, this is a bit of a question. It's not just Ian Wright. It's... Um, there's a few people there who. What, what do you? What's your? How do you gauge the situation at the moment regarding Wenger's own thoughts? Well, it was. I felt uh, a little bit central to that because earlier that day, I'd actually been on a show with uh, with Ian Wright in um, for one of the Premier League things about five hours before he did BBC, and he was talking about it then as well. And I was kind of thinking to myself, hmm, this this is a bit of a news line here, only from of course to uh, <laughs> to, to say it himself publicly. Mm. But he, he was talking about the whole incident and. There was a little bit of a slip up I thought from Arsenal on Saturday about that because um they the spin on what Wright said was then suddenly, oh no, this was a, it was an event for Arsenal's Diamond Club, which you know the, the high paying members, but it was a room in a room of five hundred people and that's where all this came. But then at his press conference after the game, Benger was directly asked, you know, so you weren't with Wright in any sort of private setting. Oh no, yeah, we had dinner, it was me, Wright, and uh, three or four other people. And obviously that's where a lot of Wright's impression came from. Um, and and, I, and as he, I think as he said himself, match today it was a, it was a fair impression because on th- I was at his press conference on Thursday and just Wenger's mood was so bad. But on Saturday, by contrast, after they've won, he had that kind of you know elation that comes with that kind of relief, and and he did call it relief at the, the win. And I, I imagine if he'd asked him about his future, then he would have been much more uh, positive about it because this this is the thing with Wenger. Talking to people that know him well, um, it's like his he's so still so utterly absorbed by every single performance, every single result, that his mood, and particularly his mood to do his future, is almost completely dictated by by the last 90 minutes of football. Uh, and this is probably going to be kind of an ongoing theme for the rest of the season. Uh, the pendulum probably swing results. Um, and I think that that's why, you know, Arsenal responses, or sorry, Arsenal fan responses, because apparently he, he is, quote, aware of Arsenal fan TV, although doesn't watch it and probably wouldn't, <laughs> probably wouldn't publicly acknowledge it. Uh, and also where they finish in the league, how they do in the Champions League could be uh, could dictate a lot of this as well. But a lot of people that know him say, I mean, first of all, no one close to him knows what he's thinking. Apparently, he hasn't given any indication whether he's made any decision. Bar, you know, kind of dropped phrases like right the other night. But you know, even as apparently as a commercial representative, they're, they're kind of all they they, they don't know what's going to happen, which is quite a remarkable situation for a club of that resources that it's so open like this, um, and there hasn't been more, been more pressure to sign. But a lot of people that do know him, I mean, despite this fear that he might go with all this, when it comes right down to it, the thought is basically that this this is a guy whose only interests are football and hard news, current events. And like, to unwind after, you know, bad defeats, he just watches more football. He watches a lot of kind of European leagues, particularly German, French. So when it comes right down to it, can, can you really imagine Wenger kind of saying, nah, I can do without that? Absolutely not. There's... there's... I cannot imagine Arsene Wenger deciding voluntarily to yeah. leave this job. The job is him. Completely, completely. And, and, and I think because even, I mean, this is a guy that he, he loves the everyday. And even if you people have been said have said how he might go to PSG or something like that or take some sort of director role elsewhere, but there's, that, there's still that break in the job for, for a guy that is consumed by, by this job, probably even more than Alex Ferguson in that sense. I mean, he, he had that he had that that famous quote about Fergie a few years ago. You know, well, he, he has his horses, so he's enjoying his life. Whereas you you, you just you, you don't think Wenger has that release in that sense. This is a guy that um, you know he you know he, he's absolutely consumed by it. Miguel, I've got the big game tomorrow against uh, against Bayern, and I'm just googling Wenger Ozil here. The headlines: yeah. 
Mesut Ozil kicked locker in front of Arsene Wenger after Man City game. Uh, Arsenal boss Arsene Wenger lays into Stars' form after poor performance against Hull. Wenger weighs up dropping Ozil for Bayern clash. That'd be a pretty big statement to drop your, well, certainly your second best player maybe after Alexis Sanchez. Uh, that, that was a piece I did in the Independent today. Uh, not that he's considering dropping him for the Bayern clash affair, but that he, I'd heard that Wenger in the last two months, like, apparently Wenger gets as frustrated with, uh, with Ozil as anyone um, and has wanted to drop him. And so, some even Arsenal players you know they get they get frustrated because they think Ozil more than anyone almost get gets away quote unquote with subpar performances without any real punishment. But I think part of the issue is that and why he hasn't dropped him? A because he does see this affects Ozil incidents like that you know kick, kicking the locker at Manchester City. Um, and it's quite it's quite an odd thing with Ozil that you see him on a pitch sometimes and the way he just doesn't get involved in incidents that like you know and, and like and people go on about how you know playmakers shouldn't. Um, you know, they, they should save themselves for uh, for moments where they can produce and, and, and all this sort of thing. It's not his position to tackle. But, like, if you're a natural competitor, if there's a challenge to be there to be made right beside you, you're probably going to do it. And there's so many moments when Ozil doesn't. You know, the Ashley Williams header against Everton being the clearest example. So it's, so it's difficult to square that with the with the apparent reality that this does get at him, that when, when, he, is, when he can't affect games, it does really frustrate him. So Wenger knows all that and knows it gets to Ozil and he's, try, he's you know, consciously trying to fix it. Uh, but secondly... They arguably don't have an obvious replacement. I mean, Wobi could go there, but he's maybe a bit too inexperienced to play the primary playmaking role. And Sanchez could go there. But I think with the way Arsenal play, it would almost require a bit too much of a reshuffle in terms of like the direction they play. Because, you know, Alexis just gets the ball and goes for it. Um, I remember talking to someone at Barcelona before who was just talking about why Alexis couldn't... Um, what didn't really happen for him there. And one reason was, particularly why it didn't really happen under Guardiola. And one reason, because Guardiola, obviously, with a, with a player like that, when one of his attackers gets a ball, their first instinct should be to stop, pause, and look, you know, to have that kind of awareness. Whereas Sanchez's first instinct is always to get it and just run and, and, and go for it, and you know, at attack. And obviously what Ozil does is much more kind of nuanced than that. There's much more pause to it. He's, you know, looking for angles. So, you know, the switch from one to the other would be would maybe maybe too great, and for that reason, I mean, Wenger, or for those reasons, Wenger probably hasn't uh, pulled the trigger on Ozil yet in terms of his team selection. Mm. Well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Miguel, brilliant, thanks a million. Cheers, lads. See if you don't get this out with Motherwell. You're away, mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. What's it, fans? Just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! Poor old Arsene Wenger. Obviously, the criticism has been coming in from all corners. Mm. And some particularly stinging words came out of the mouth of Garth Crooks over the weekend. He was speaking on BBC Final Score. I've got some really big concerns, and they've, they've gathered over a number of years. First of all, when he actually pushed Alan Pardew. Very unusual, out of character. It happened again with Martin Yall, And then again with Jose Mourinho. And then with the referee, or the fourth official. 
for me, these are signs that there's something happening here with Orson Wenger as he's getting old. The pressure may be getting to him a little bit. The judgment gets a little more impaired. He's getting older. He's getting frustrated, Garth, but that's and, three and incidents in 20 years. Three incidents of discipline in 20 years. Maybe one is too many. Some but it's about frustration. Great, great. Bill Shankly, Brian Clough never pushed officials or other opposition managers. Don't tell me about managers and, and what they should do. I've seen great managers never behave like this. There is a code of conduct. And what this is indicating to me is here is a man under pressure. Now, I understand it's a pressurised game. But at one stage, when he pushed that fourth official, I thought, it's time for you, Austin, to take a break from the game. Yeah, Brian Clough, uh, an undoubtedly great manager. Again, I'm not sure he'd be the man I'd cite <laughs> when you're trying to argue that managers back in the day didn't resort to violence. He did punch one of his own fans. I mean, we're, I'm not, forget, I'm not no, misremembering he, he, this. He way. punched one of his fans. He punched at least one of his players, Roy Keane. Hmm. Yeah, he, pun- he decked Roy Keane. Uh, he punched the fans. <laughs> uh, I mean, there was lots of other... Um, I suppose they're not... He didn't punch a referee, so maybe... Strictly speaking, the comparison is accurate. Yeah, <laughs> aggressions micro and macro. I mean, the other thing is that that the whole the thing with Martin Yall and Alan Pardew, they both happened in two thousand six. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Arsene Wenger is, is nearly eleven years older than that now, and and he's always kind of been doing, when he said it's out of character, it's in character. Arsene Wenger was supposedly going to be banned for twelve matches in two thousand when Arsenal played at Sunderland. Uh, Patrick Vieira got sent off. Um, Darren Williams was a Sunderland player who had uh, basically, he, he pulled Patrick Vieira's shirt and Vieira swung a lordly arm, <laughs> nearly took his head off. <laughs> the referee, uh, he was just swatting him aside. You know, Patrick Vieira, when you're, when you're Patrick Vieira, you, you have the right to sort of mark out your personal space. Uh, the, referee, the referee sent him off. And Wenger waited in the tunnel for for the officials. And then, you know, by all accounts, you know, there was a bit of I don't know if a, if an attack would be would be putting it too too strongly. But it would be more a the sort of behaviour more at home in the Tyrone senior football championship than in the Premier League. Yeah. Um it was uh, he he uh Wenger was supposedly waiting then for, for Darren Williams, the, the man who'd been involved in the thing. The two were head to head was the report. So you know, putting each other uh, with the sort of the the contact headbutt type of thing, not the not swinging the head violently, but pushing, pushing the, the four inch you. headbutt. Yeah, and uh, and that was you know only f- four years into his career at Arsenal. You know what I mean? He's he's the guy. He, 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 <laughs> he's not un- he's not unraveling in his old age, as seems to which it seems to be suggested by Garth Crooks. Losing he, control, acting how he always acted. It's what Van Gogh said. Some people here need to learn how to lose. That was what Bobby Robson said in two thousand and one, and you know sixteen years later, we're still waiting. We've got another podcast out today. That's Monday. It's going to feature Six Nations chat with Shane Horgan and Martin Williams and lots more besides. You can listen to that whatever way you get this show. That is available to everybody to get the daily podcasts from tomorrow, Tuesday to Friday, including Richie's Sean Dyche show. Please sign up to the Second Captains World Service at secondcaptains.com. We're very, 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 very excited about this. Even if you're not going to get involved, you should, if you have time, you should go on secondcaptains.com and have a look at the new site. Lots of cool stuff there, including videos from the Liberty Hall Theatre show late last year. Some great stuff there. To those of you who are members already, thanks so much for being so quick off the mark. You should have a little welcome mini podcast in your feed right now. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks again. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. You're amazing. Talk soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off.
never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, 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 